You're listening to Science Soapbox, a podcast at the intersection of science, policy, and advocacy. I'm Miriam Zeringham, joined here today with Devin Collins. Hey. And Avital Percher. Hey, everyone. So today we have a special podcast episode where we are discussing a book that the three of us read called The Two Cultures by C.P. Snow. And let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So, so a little bit of background. This uh, We've had a couple of our interviewees who have, have lauded this book as something that inspired them to try to unite the worlds of, you know, policy the humanities and, and policy with science. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to see what that was about. Yeah. <laughs> and and my background in science communication started really with a series that I started um, that was trying to bring science and art together. And so the two cultures is often touted in those science and art circles. And so I, for the longest time, had thought that this was going to be an argument about why we need to bring the sciences together with the arts and the humanities and have some like really concrete examples from history where we have you know, the, the great polymaths, the Aristotles of the world who were versed in philosophy and art and who also made some really amazing discoveries in astronomy and mathematics. And so I like was so excited to read this book and kind of get the history of, uh, of where science and art was really well melded together. But instead, what I got was this really patronizing argument about how scientists and people in the humanities cannot speak to one another and no solutions about how to fix this other than calling people Luddites, unable to read and things like that. Okay. That, that was a little preview of how I feel about this. Okay. First, I'm going to we're going to jump ahead, and I'm going to say we have to introduce what was argued in in the book itself. So the two cultures comes in four parts, and we're going to what Mariam is referencing is the first part, which is this divide between two cultures. And the argument here is that there is this schism, if you will, between the humanities and the science community, in which there is such a poor degree of communication is that their advances and their successes are not communicated across and there is no dialogue that enables the transfer of these ideas if you yeah. will. Unless you're C.P. Snow who Unless is somehow able to, to both dine with the great scientists <laughs> and the great humanities mm-hmm. intellectuals as he calls them. It came from a I think you guys, you y'all might start to hear a little something in my tone about how I felt about <laughs> okay, so let's Yeah, let's tackle the bad stuff. Here's what, here's what I find I'm completely on page with several aspects about what's greeting about this book. Published in 1959, this book is definitely through the lens of the patriarchy, if you will. There is only the pronoun is he is used throughout the entire book, even when referring to science and writers, because women didn't write as well, it turns out. Until until you get to the only reference to women doing science, which is, uh, and I quote, I myself have found Sicilian girls taking the top places in the honors physics course, a very exacting course. So the only mention of women doing science is to talk about Sicilian girls. Was which is- there some sort of uh, now, I I was not in Sicily in, in you know, the early part of the 20th century. But was there a, a stigma about Sicilian girls doing I, math and science? I don't know. In particular, like I 
it was just interesting that he picked that for I mean for whatever reason like picked that example it just sounds it's such a minor thing but it it really did reading it and reading how he only talks about men of science men of the humanities really drove home to me how while we haven't you know achieved gender or racial or ethnic parody in the sciences, uh, the people who are writing about science are much, much better about making it sort of gender neutral uh, Mm -hmm. in their language, because this was just reading it. I wanted to kind of rip my hair out. It was it was very shocking to me how rattled I was by Mm -hmm. by the language that was used. Yeah, agreed. And so this definitely if this were to be reprinted as a for future generations, I would completely agree with just replacing the pronouns yeah. in this book. Um, another thing that definitely I think didn't age was, as you mentioned, I, I wonder if the schism is not as severe nowadays as it was back as he's referencing it. Maybe it is accurate that he's talking about that he encounters scientists who they haven't really read much of any literature and they can't engage. Yeah, I mean, the, reading it, it... <sighs> You know, I don't I I didn't exist at that time, obviously, (laughs) but thinking about, you know, my dad, my dad is a he has a background in astrophysics, but he was taking Russian literature courses in school and like always really encouraged me that even if I was going to be a scientist, that I should be well read and well versed in other ideas. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, Albert Einstein and he's, you know, this great polymath you have. And he actually C.P. Snow does acknowledge the affinity of scientists for music, which I thought was interesting because there's there's a lot of literature uh, about physicists uh, in particular and their ability to be amazing musicians. But I just like reading this because he had no credibility to me because I found his writing so irritating and so poorly argued. It was snarky. It was very snarky. And for somebody who's talking about reuniting the sciences and the humanities, he really should have consulted with someone who was like good at the art of persuasive writing because he, I mean, like to to insult people is not any kind of way to get them on board. And so reading it, I was just like, I agree with you, dude. Like, I think that science and the humanities and society should, I mean, and that's what we literally do on this show. Yeah. Uh, so you're preaching to the choir, and I hate you. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> so, so I don't even know that I buy that that this schism existed in the way that he describes it, or whether he was using it as a rhetorical device uh, to kind of heighten up this schism that that maybe didn't exist in that way because all of the examples that I can think of kind of run counter to this Mm -hmm. but you know I might be it's possible that I'm cherry picking or that I've I've picked up on like a certain narrative of science and scientists and and to his credit in the book he does credit that it is a somewhat of an oversimplification he has that small paragraph that he discusses that this was best represented and an idea that he acknowledged was a bit more complex with that in mind though I really liked your point about how he failed to address solutions and what are your thoughts on if you had if you took this for face value and said this is the problem what do you do to address it so so yeah i mean i think that you know 50 60 years later uh looking back at this i don't i still don't think that people are doing enough to address i think the problem still exists not quite as heightened as the way that he describes it and i think 
I think a lot of it is from the scientist's end, and it's because how, of how we're trained. So I think one possible solution is is to think of science education not as a pipeline, but as sort of like a branching tree where you can go into academia, but you can also go into careers in policy, in consulting, in industry, so that you're really embedding scientists everywhere mm-hmm. uh, within the way that society works. And I and I think it's not an accident that somebody who read this, who was really inspired by it, was John Holdren, Obama's, uh, President Obama's uh, former Secretary. science advisor, who we interviewed, and, and that's how we decided to read this book. And, and I think that he read the article argument that was laid out and took it one step further, thinking, well, we need to bridge this gap through multidisciplinary education. And he started a graduate program um, at Berkeley that that does just that. And it's this, you know, very small program. And it's just, I think, in in energy or environmental sciences. And so, you know, we need we need more people scaling that out into broader swaths of Mm -hmm. of uh, academia. And I think another way to sort of bridge the gap is to have scientists be more honest about the process of science, all of the failure that's embedded in it, the ignorance that is required to push forward and ask questions uh, and, you know, continue continue expanding the, the boundaries of our knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, communicating and I think that C.P. Snow does talk a little bit about how beautiful some of these discoveries are and how their elegance and describing them in these really artistic ways, which, you know, that's how I got started in in science communication, thinking about how do we communicate about science in this way that's like imperfect and beautiful and all of the things that you experience when you're in the lab and like the reason that we keep going, even though science continues to like pound you down into the dirt until you are dust. <laughs> Like a schnitzel. <laughs> like, uh, like a schnitzel. <laughs> I'm not familiar with schnitzel making, but but I'll allow it. <laughs> you, 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 you pound that chicken till it's flat. It involves lots of lots of pounding into no thin cheese. Oh, for some reason, I thought a schnitzel was a pastry. Oh, it's no. a chicken. Or yes. like a, yeah, okay, so never mind. Like Wiener uh, Schnitzel. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah We're Mary, all on the same page. Mary, you, you bring up like something that, something that was on my mind as I was reading this is I kept thinking back kind of repeatedly to our conversation with, with um, Dr. Holdren about people being um, generalists rather than specialists. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I actually did agree with Snow on is that he kind of posits these two reasons for what he thinks, at least in England, um, these two things that he thinks are... are uh, responsible for the emergence and kind of the maintenance of two cultures being separate and and uh, increasingly polarized, and that one of them is is again in England strict adherence to uh, social strata that have already been um, for mm-hmm. other reasons established, and despite uh, better education and kind of a leveling of the playing field, um, at least socially. Uh, people just kind of stick to what they've known generationally. Um, and the other thing is is that within educational systems, um, he sort of criticizes the push, um, which I, I kind of agree with, uh, the push to become more and more specialized mm-hmm. to the detriment of, of things that lie outside of that specialty. And I think that, yeah, I think that, that Dr. Holdren did that was really great is that he took that and he was like, okay, so here's the problem. Let's flesh out a solution. Mm-hmm. And if the problem is that, okay, we have too many specialists, not enough generalists who can bridge those gaps, then we need to create people who are specialized in being generalists. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, one thing that I did really appreciate reading this was um, 
the the way that he acknowledged what the American education system does really well, which is pump a lot of people through college, which is not less getting less and less affordable, but getting a lot of people in college and getting them exposed to that liberal arts education so that they are very well rounded before they become immensely specialized at the yeah, PhD level. Yeah, I think he level. even points out that like when it comes to PhD level education, Americans, at least at the time, and I guess that it, it might be a little, it might be similar. I'm not sure I didn't do my PhD in Europe, <laughs> but we, his opinion was that uh, Americans would kind of hit very hard with the specializations after, you know, 20 plus years of general education in elementary school, middle school, high school, and then even college. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting that how like, nothing seems to really have changed within the as I understand the UK educational system and and a lot of the European educational system where you end up being highly specialized in your college career mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't happen so the idea of, of a liberal arts education I think it still has not taken root uh, in the UK but I could totally be wrong on that that's <laughs> true. Another thing that I thought was really intriguing was that he described science as a culture in and of itself, ah, yeah. um, which it definitely does contribute to our, you know, you know, disinterest in things outside of science, right? Um, and I think the way that he puts it actually was kind of cool, in that scientific culture really is a culture into in itself in a, like an anthropological sense, mm-hmm. which is really cool. And it actually made me think about when I first moved to New York. Uh, I've, I went out to a bar with a friend and and some of his buddies who were there. I met them, and like one of them was actually an anthropologist who studied scientists and it's really cool thinking about his work that he shared with me in the light of this problem that cp snow has identified that Mm -hmm. i think like you know the particulars of the problem have have changed a little bit over time but i I think that this is something that we're still thinking about Mm -hmm. it's interesting that you frame it through that lens because if you make that argument that we are an individual culture it would make sense then to extrapolate that the mixing of cultures is inherently difficult And by nature of us having our own understanding, values, and perceptions of how things should progress, the idea of integrating that with a completely different culture is one that a brief glance at history shows us is with obstacles, inherent. And actually, I'd love to circuit that back and talk about what briefly about Mariam was saying about the branching of the trees and how the culture spreads. There was a recent interesting article, I think, in the New York Times about comedians coming from scientific backgrounds. And for those who aren't in New York and listening to this, at least in New York, and we can share a few links, there is an intense and increasing variety of shows that try to bring in science to a more tangible and and digestible format for the audience to enjoy and appreciate. And yeah, I, so I'll I'll quickly plug them because that was a friend a friend of ours uh, bar that was profiled in that New York Times piece. So Caveat NYC uh, is a new event space that opened downtown in Manhattan, uh, and it's it was founded by Ben Lilly, who is a physicist who uh, co-founded the Story Collider, which, in the interest of full disclosure, I uh, work for as their DC producer. So. I'm a big fan of the Story Collider, and they're trying to bring true personal stories about science 
clients to to a vast range of audiences, uh, both in a live format and in a podcast format for you podcast nerds out there. There's You're the Expert, another podcast that does live shows at Caveat, incidentally. The Flash Forward podcast from uh, the journalist Rose Eveleth is really excellent. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that we're, we're kind of in this really fertile space for ideas crossing boundaries in a way that's really exciting and inspiring. Yeah, there it's that that's actually I never really thought about it in that way, but New York is actually kind of unique in the places I lived. Not not that I've lived in a million places, but like even right next door at Cornell, a grad student I know named Shannon O'Dell does uh, oh, yeah, has a show called Drunk Science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drunk Science yeah. is super fun. And it's, yeah, it's really awesome. Uh, here we thought we'd never be able to reach out to college students. <laughs> Get them drunk. Yeah. So the scientists, not the college students. <laughs> just to be clear, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't endorse just underage drinking. Yeah, don't, don't do that. No. But it's really cool because uh, she, along with her, with her partners in that, in that project, um, they are all science folks. Mm-hmm. And so they bring something that's really real and genuine to, to the comedy that they're bringing. That's about, you know, that concerns itself with science. It's cool. So, yeah. So that is part one of this lecture series on which the title of the book is based, The Two Cultures. For me, I was interested to notice that contrary to my expectations, though, the book then took a complete turn and it talked about a different aspect of science, not its interaction between science and the humanities, but rather in the interaction between the scientific community and the industrial and scientific revolution. He changed, he pivoted entirely and brought it to the interface between the general society and how scientists has interacted with that. And the, for part two and three is in sequence. It's the Industrial Revolution and then the Scientific Revolution. And it never occurred to me, his argument, that the scientific community looked at from a distance the Industrial Revolution and said, I'm not dealing with this. This is applied science, and I'm not applying my skill set to these problems and these challenges and this phenomenon, and I am isolating myself. And I, I thought that was really, really interesting and worthy. I guess today that doesn't stand anymore. There's too much of an interaction between the stem, the basic research community and the translational research community of this continuum. But yeah, I thought that was I mean, an interesting thought. Something I wonder, just just thinking about this now, is how the structure of, although sci- most science funding does come from the government in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting. So he says this, I was just glancing through my notes and he says this thing, which I thought was really interesting. Um, He says the climate of thought of young research workers in Cambridge then was not to our credit. We prided ourselves that the science we were doing could not in any conceivable circumstances have any practical use. The more firmly one could make that claim, the more superior one felt. So this idea of science for the sake of science, this like purist approach on science is not something like you... If you were writing a grant to the NIH and you said that this could not be the beauty of this grant, the beauty of this project is that it will never have any practical use. That's an immediate no. Yeah, that is anathema to the way that we do science. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like NSF, NIH, you need to have that broader impacts, like how this how this will pay tribute back into society. And so I wonder, you know, how how has that kind of shifted over time? And I don't have the answer. And so if any of our listeners do, I would love to to kind of know more about the history of how that happened. And I think, you know, that's an excellent thing because 
yes, it's nice to do science for the for the sake of science and for the sake of beauty and these sorts of pure things. But science is expensive to do. And if you're asking for the public to buy in with their tax taxpayer dollars uh, to the pursuit of science, we should be giving back to the community in some way, even if it is just to talk about um, the beauty of what we're doing in the lab. So so yeah, I thought that was really interesting and something that I I don't think it's true here in the States and I hope it's not true in the UK, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure because I, again, have never done science there. (laughs) (laughs) Even more so is that today we have an understanding that even the pursuits of these these non-productive elements can yield something later on. We acknowledge that we don't know what it might do but there is potential there and therefore it's worth exploring. Yeah. I mean, I guess also another thing that popped into my head is this This happened, this book was written or this essay was written before the, the biological revolution yeah. and before biomedicine even became a reality, before like the pharmaceutical industry was an industry. And so it's kind of interesting to think about now you have a lot of scientists who are hoping to eventually patent and then market their research uh, because there's quite a big profit incentive you know stepping back from the kind of like oh science for the benefit of humanity and the public good there's also science for the benefit of of you know your your pocketbook or your wallet <laughs> if you are not inclined to pocketbooks everybody should have pocketbooks <laughs> yeah i don't know one thing that stuck out to me in in section three was how he describes the, the coming about of the scientific revolution i mean i'll just i'll just read it if this yeah. says. so this is this is the beginning of section three the scientific revolution and he starts that I guess in an attempt to define this distinction that he has drawn between the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution. And he starts that saying, I've just mentioned a distinction between the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution. The distinction is not clear edged, but it is a useful one. And I ought to try to define it now. By the industrial revolution, I mean the gradual use of machines, the employment of men and women in factories, the change in this country from a population mainly of of agricultural laborers to a population mainly engaged in making things in factories and distributing them when they were made. So I think that what he he goes on to say in, in the rest of this introductory paragraph, which I'm not going to belabor by reading out loud, but is that the scientific revolution in part grew out of that of the industrial revolution in that scientific discoveries were necessitated to be applied to the growing machine age, right? So instead of new inventions being kind of, you know, brought about and like, and, and peddled by tinkerers, and I think he calls them odd inventors, um, but the real stuff, and I guess that real stuff is, is uh, you know, revolutionary discoveries uh, being brought into the growing machine age. More rigorous investigation. Right, and then, and applied science for like its own sake and yeah. not just like, oh, it turns out that, you know, I found this, this uh, journal article that somebody mm-hmm. wrote, you know, 20 years 20 ago, years and, it, and this might help make my machine better, mm-hmm. you know. So I definitely agree that the incentives to engage in science are changing in, the, in our, I'd say, current form of the scientific enterprise. What I would like to see, though, is that considering the pace of how science is proceeding, it would be to reassess our ability to streamline the basic science into the translated science. So the part of section three is how the scientific revolution occurred. 
and how the scientists engaged, but the public wasn't keeping up. It's almost this inverse relationship between the industrial and scientific revolution. For me, what was interesting was to establish this as a semi-benchmark to say, how are we measuring our current uh, capabilities to integrate science? And I, for me, that was actually the most interesting about part the section two and three. It was highlighting not what was being done then, but what, what how it presents an example of what we should be looking at now, such as with the robotic revolution and artificial intelligence and all these things which are going to change our society very drastically. So we're going to put a few more minutes in on section four, the last part of this lecture series. And this is talking, this expands actually the scope of the interaction between science and the public, the general public, and expands it to the interaction between countries. And I found this very interesting because his, for me, his, his argument for this section was that the discrepancy that was emerging between the scientifically advancing countries and developing countries at the time was, inc was widening so extensively that these communities would look at the advances and say, we can get where you are now very quickly with your technology. And much to my surprise, almost, he had this almost humble acknowledgement of the impact that the British have had on these communities by saying, what we need to do is just send over our expertise to places like India, which at the time that he was writing this was still growing in their economy, give them our technologies and get the fuck out and do nothing else. So my issue with this whole section was that there were a few of them. Um, one was that he kind of lionizes scientists as a community. So after he's, you know, derided them for for the first, you know, like 30 or 40 pages of this of this little booklet, he then goes on to say that like scientists are the key to solving the world's problems. And so and and he says in here and I'll I'll read another little passage so he's saying you know he he acknowledges that racism is a thing to That's his credit nice yeah. it was very nice of him to to acknowledge such a thing but he says fortunately this is an attitude and so that attitude is uh not being racist or colorblindness so Colorblindness is an attitude which comes easily to scientists. They are freer than most people from racial feeling. Their own culture is in its human relations a democratic one. And, and the crazy thing is that this is coming right on, on the heels of World War II uh, in which millions of people were murdered brutally, heinously, uh, because they were thought to be gen genetically less superior than the Aryan race. And where did that idea come from? Well, from science. Granted, it was a bastardization of science, but like the seeds of that idea came out of a scientific one. So so I think he, he is unable to acknowledge in the way that scientists today are unable to acknowledge that we are are human and that while we might have our own internal culture which is like a scientific culture and a kind of way of thinking we are not blind from bias or prejudice and so i think it's really dangerous that he says something like that and he says it so flippantly because if if we're not checking ourselves and like digging down deep and thinking do these ideas come from a place of prejudice uh is my desire to look at evolutionary psychology where i compare the differences between a male brain and a female brain and decide that women are less good at math and science says so, so you, you can't you can't just say that flippantly and well you can't say that in the current day flippantly yeah or, or even or even that. back then because because eugenics was very 
mm-hmm. you know, we th- there was a war fought on the basis of <laughs> eugenics, yeah. essentially, and and like other things like landed power. So I I found that really irritating, and I also thought that this is a place where where he could have brought it all back home and said that if sci- if we are to bring scientific expertise and skills to the developing world and impart that you know knowledge on them uh, this is this is a really good place for the humanities and the social sciences and people who are really expert at thinking about culture and society uh, to help kind of figure out what is the best strategy it's not that scientists can do this alone because it's not the domain of science mm-hmm. to think about you know how how do we best disseminate knowledge necessarily I mean that it's social science but I don't think he I think he is mostly talking about the physical sciences to put things in the context of what we were talking about beforehand though he does not in a way he does address he provides one suggested solution which is linguists which is linguists yes but <laughs> it, it was not at a particularly fleshed out idea and I yeah think to, that be, to be clear listeners um he says that the scientists the western scientists going out into the developing world should bring linguists with them to translate mm-hmm. and so i mean like That's yes first step yeah why not? yes yeah. like that is duh. a practical solution that is very practical <laughs> but you should also be bringing people who like like anthropologists people who are Although anthropology is also pretty racist at that time, uh, talking about savages and things. But but yeah, I mean, I well, that's you, what you, I think. You, I, I think <laughs> that you have a better, more nuanced understanding of the intricacies of what's involved. And I think you're spot on about that. I mean, it was just such a missed opportunity when you're talking about how these two cultures should be brought to. Well, why? To make the world a better place. Yeah. Yeah. He spent so much time sort of setting up this you know divorce between the two the the titular two cultures but i think that it sort of obfuscates it it obfuscates what he's actually talking about which is intellectual life so like if you are at a university like i think he even points out like cambridge for instance with a prodigious science and prodigious humanities education those people are not talking to one another and that's a different Mm -hmm. problem than scientists somehow being divorced from the culture at large because it's not that we're not born you know mm-hmm. holding test tubes like we we come up and then we go into a specialization <laughs> and so horrifying well and, to, so, and so to start and i think it's disingenuous for this to say that that we as scientists are number one colorblind which is the dumbest thing but that that we are not plagued by the same uh social problems and and prejudices that that plague non-scientists which is just patently untrue yeah Mm -hmm. and and i think that it also creeps in and and a lot of the ways that you're pointing out uh mary and all the ways you're pointing out i'm not gonna discount what you're saying um you can but (laughs) well no because i agree with you i think that there's a really great example here where i think he kind of gets it wrong and he says and i'm not exactly sure how i want to characterize this getting it wrong and other than the fact that it is just a wrong thing to say but talks about how terrible it is that so much talent was was uh, in, invested, so much English talent, I should point out, was invested in uh, the Indian Empire instead of the Industrial Revolution. And I just, it just misses so many things because the Industrial Revolution was powered by wealth that was plundered from around the world. So I... <laughs> To say that, like, oh, things would be better if we had invested our minds and our best and our brightest into the Industrial Revolution and not imperialism, let's just call it what it is, 
it's just dumb because India one could not have happened without the other. I just don't. Yeah. Anyway, and like, I'm, I'm and like a the way bit. that that scales to, I mean, like scientists have done or or engineers have done a great job of making it to the developing world. The problem is that they plunder instead of giving people the tools to make use of their resources. The, and so, like we, you know, Amer- like America, the UK have completely destabilized huge regions of the world by exploiting. No, I, I what my interpretation was they have exploited other countries by utilizing their technology instead of sharing their technology or their resource by their by u- by taking their own technology their own western technology and using it to mm-hmm. to suck up the oil of the of the rest of the world or yeah that's um, an interesting comparison okay so for me summary notes is that I actually liked some of the ideas introduced in this book other than the major caveats that we have discussed I would love to see a newer version of this thing written by today's standards. I would love to see uh, not alone just the issues of the pronouns, not alone the issues of acknowledging of the the more nuanced aspects, but also saying by our current the state of our science at the moment, the state of our transfer, technology transfer, how are we progressing by all these metrics, as well as the cultural divide. I think it sets pretty good precedent for 50 years ago and i'm kind of nothing exists really other than a single op-ed that tries to revisit it sparsely i would like to see the members of of president obama's ostp write an updated version i would like to hear i was inspired by this and this is what i did because Mm -hmm. i mean like this book it lays out some ideas and doesn't and gives no really points of action which is why i'm just like all of the people who are inspired by it like can you tell me why and like i mean this earnestly what what did you take away from it and what did you do about it um and you can tweet us at science underscore soapbox because like what the heck (laughs) well i wonder i mean like there are some good especially in the introductory parts of the book there are some really great little nuggets that that he that he has here like he talks about how scientists are are optimistic inherently which is oh yeah i loved that it was really wonderful and he says of scientists that they are inclined to be impatient to see if something can be done and inclined to think that it can be done until it's proved otherwise. And that's optimism. That's really great. I, I think that's really awesome. And he goes on to say after that optimism that scientists has is an optimism that the rest of the world needs, mm-hmm. which I think is entirely true. But the, another thing that I was looking at was he points out something that he thinks that scientists and non-scientists have in common, which is that uh, he he describes it as the individual condition of each of us being tragic, which I thought was just a really interestingly poetic way to oh, put it. I think it. I also understand. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's basically like we we right. are born into this world alone and we will leave it alone. And I right. was just like, mm. and it's like, okay, yeah, sure. But that is but, a fact. But actually a cool thing where he brings in, you know, the, I think, hopelessness that people can feel when they see a world that is not as they would have it and um, the optimism that scientists can bring to that. He says that, uh, for again, of scientists, nearly all of them, and this is where the color of hope generally comes in, would see no reason why just because the individual condition is tragic, so must the social condition be. I love that. That's really cool, that right? Yeah. I've been thinking about a lot about that. That seems like a good place for us to end. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Leave your comments if you have any. Yeah. And recommend a book. That's our show, folks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Science Soapbox. 
For more episodes at the intersection of science policy and advocacy, you can check us out on the web at sciencesoapbox.org or follow us on Twitter at science underscore soapbox. You can also subscribe to our episodes on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, leave us a review so that more folks can discover our podcast. Special thanks to the Rockefeller Outreach Lab, where we record our intros and outros, and to Visager, who made the music that you are now listening to. Until next time, I'm Miriam signing off for Devin and Avital. We're, 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 we